Hello, and welcome to our fifth episode of the podcast series from UCL Business, Big Talks on Big Impacts. UCL Business, or UCLB, is the commercialization company for UCL, and this year-long podcast series celebrates the company's 30 years of collaboration and impact. I'm Marina Santilli, Associate Director of Physical Sciences and Engineering at UCLB, and today I'm looking forward to discussing my topic, AI in Business, with my guest, Dr. Daniel Hume. Daniel is founder and CEO of UCL's very first AI spin-out company, Citalia, which was incorporated in 2008, just as he was wrapping up his doctorate. Citalia has grown impressively in size and impact over these past 15 years and became part of the WPP group of global companies in 2021. Daniel also holds a position of Chief AI Officer at WPP. Welcome, Daniel. So Citalia has been a significant success story for UCLB, UCL, and in particular the computer science department where you gained your undergrad, master's and doctorate all in AI. Can you give us a brief overview of the company and what it does? Citalia um, combines two fields in computer science. Uh, I guess the first field is traditional operations research, optimization, discrete mathematics uh, to solve computationally difficult problems. And also it combines that with machine learning, um, deep learning, uh, data science uh, is obviously technologies that are very good at extracting insights from data. By combining these two types of technologies, you can really move the needle in solving problems for organizations. These are enterprise specific solutions you tend to build. We tend to build uh, enterprise uh, solutions, innovations uh, that, that um, uh, for problems that have never been solved before, or if you move the needle significantly, it has a massive impact on the business. And that, what we try to do then is build assets or repeatable products that then can be licensed and taken to other industries. Right. So anyway, you and I have recorded many fireside chats over the past years. I'm particularly looking forward to this one, though, as I know that solving problems in business using AI tools is something that you've dedicated your working life to. Also, you've witnessed firsthand how attitudes to integrating AI in business have evolved since deep learning came of age around 10 years ago. I hope you have plenty of thoughts to share with us on this. But anyway, before jumping to the current day, let's go back to the mid-2000s when you first started working on the idea for Citalia. Notably, this was several years before the impressive breakthroughs in convolutional neural nets jumped out a computer science lab to give a step change improvement in image and speech recognition, and certainly before businesses had any idea of the revolution that approach would bring. What was your thinking at that time regarding the extent of the commercial opportunity for AI algorithms? When I joined UCL uh, during my undergraduate in, in AI back then, um, and my, my master's was also in, in intelligence, I, I was fascinated by the idea of building um, intelligent machines without really thinking about its impact on, on industry. Um, I, I started my PhD um, trying to model the brain of a bumblebee. So bumblebees have a million brain cells. Bumblebees can do amazing things. They have very, very similar um, uh, ways of looking at the world as, as human beings. And if we could understand how bumblebees see the world, then we could use those insights to understand how human beings see the world. And, um, and, and back then, during my PhD, I also had the opportunity to, to go to London Business School to do um, MBA electives. And it was really then that I saw the opportunity of applying algorithms um, in industry uh, to make a big difference. From, from my experience of working with industry, there, there's a huge amount of inefficiencies, uh, opportunities to make things better. And these algorithms that I guess I was interested in during my PhD could really help um, solve some of these problems. I, I, actually, at the time, I, I, um, I was very interested in, in, in neural networks because obviously a, a bumblebee brain is a neural network. And um, the question for my PhD was, can you model a million brain cells in a, in a machine and 20 years ago it was it was impossible 
Um, and, and at the time, I was exploring with um, ideas about how you could parallelize the training of these neural networks. One of the bottlenecks in, in building big brains was the ability to train these neural networks um, quickly. And um, so I was actually looking at trying to implement some of these algorithms in, in um, FPGAs and GPUs. And it just so happens that that's what Jeff Hinton was doing in, in Stanford or Berkeley. I don't, I don't remember where. So they, they managed to really achieve the parallelization of the training of neural networks, which now allows us to, to build very large um, brains. But I was a terrible programmer. I was terrible uh, at building software. So, um, so I understood that the, 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 the computational complexity around training neural networks was a problem if we wanted to build big brains. And so I got very interested in the field of computational complexity and optimization algorithms. And, and that's where I spotted the opportunity to bring these two types of technologies together. And where did you think those first opportunities might be? So in, in, in London Business School, we, we, we pitched uh, an idea based on, on the application of these algorithms. And the obvious industries um, cropped up, you know, the airline industry, um, any industry that had you know, large-scale logistics type problems. Um, these these um, uh, supply chain problems are traditionally um, optimization problems. And again, if you can move the needle by 2 3 4%, it usually translates to millions, tens of millions, even hundreds of millions of, 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 of dollars of, of savings for, for organizations. So, so logistics um, type problems are ripe for optimization. And again, you can enhance those solutions by using machine learning. And where did you think those first opportunities might be? And in those days, obviously, there were optimization algorithms around already. How widely were they actually being used in industry? Was it a hard sell to encourage businesses to think about adopting them into their workflows and systems? If you're one step ahead, you're a pioneer. If you're two steps ahead, you're a martyr. And I think <laughs> for the past 15 years, I've been trying to kind of educate business leaders that the problems they have are not insight problems, actually. Um, the problems they have are decision problems. And it's very likely it's one of these computationally difficult decision problems that they're having to, to, to deal with in their business. And traditionally, human beings are trying to solve these problems. They're solving them badly. And uh, I mean, I'd love to geek out around the mathematics here, but, but you know, if you apply the wrong algorithm to solving these problems, it will take longer than the age of the universe to solve them. If you apply the right algorithm, it will take milliseconds. And I think the battleground now for organizations, the realization is if they want to win, they need to have the best algorithms to solve these problems. And have you seen that message change over the past 15 years quite significantly, or is it still a challenge? I think what was interesting is in the early, in the early days, um, uh, people weren't really thinking about computational algorithms uh, because we hadn't made a huge amount of progress in, in academia in solving some of these problems. Um, neural networks were still kind of nascent, and there hadn't been much uh, research being been, been pioneered in, in, in traditional operations research. So companies at the time were looking at um, uh, innovation. So how can you unlock the creative capacity of people to, to do more interesting things rather than looking at technology? And, uh, and then what happened is that, is that, is that organizations realized to be able to ask questions of their business, uh, to be able to then an, uh, answer those questions, they needed to bring data together, which was then the birth of big data. So, so they realized that they needed to bring data together to extract insights for human beings then to go and use those insights to, to, try, to drive, um, drive the business forwards. Um, but then the realization was that human beings actually are not so good at making decisions. And, and now what we need to do is use algorithms to, to replace a lot of what decision making happens with human beings. So, so we're moving from kind of 
big data now in the in the 2010s, 2015s, to now using algorithms to extract insights from data. Now, I would argue that's still not the right investment of time and energy. I think that companies don't have insight problems, they have decision problems. And over the next five years, organizations are going to realize that they need to be um, employing, um, applying optimization algorithms first. So as you say, during 2010 to 2015, things are beginning to change a little bit. And data science obviously depends on collection of data. So was the collection of data an issue at that time? Was that an initial hurdle for you, trying to sell a decision-making product into a company that potentially hadn't collected much data yet? Yeah, there, there was a few hurdles. And I think that there's, there's kind of a handful of things that have come together over the past 10 years that now allow us to do really interesting things. And I now look at AI not through definitions, and we can talk about some definitions later if you'd like, but I, I now look at AI through the emergence of, of technologies, of algorithms, of data, of compute that have kind of converged to allow us to now do really interesting things in industry. So I think that what happened in, in, the, in the 2010s was that we were able to start to get access to large data. The cloud obviously came, which enabled people to, to then process that data. And then there were some advances in, um, in algorithms, in neural networks, that allowed us to now do interesting things. And, and of course, what happened then is that we realized that we don't have enough skills, people with the talent to be able to then utilize those things. So, so there was a now a, you know, a push from um, academia to make sure that we're, we're, we're um, educating the next generation to utilize these technologies. So, so back then, I guess none of this would be called AI. Um, and uh, it was called data science or business analytics. And, and I think that there's still a, a very a misconception around AI. So my, my master's, my PhD was on, was on AI. And um, the, 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 the current popular but weak definition of AI is getting computers to do things that humans can do. And, and actually, humans are bounded. We're limited by our, our abilities in, in, in many ways. So benchmarking machines against humans is a very silly thing to do. Uh, humans uh, are, are good at solving problems up to seven, good at finding patterns in about four dimensions, but computers can solve problems with thousands of moving parts and they can find patterns in thousands of dimensions. So, so using human beings as the benchmark for intelligence is not the right thing to do. And I think that's what people have been doing over the past decade. Uh, there's a much better definition of AI, actually, that comes from the defini definition of intelligence, which is, which is goal-directed adaptive behavior. What you want to do is ultimately build systems that can make decisions, learn about whether those decisions are good or bad, adapt themselves so that next time they can make better decisions. And, and if I'm being totally honest, over the past 10 years, we don't see adaptive systems in production. Uh, and, and that was one of the differentiators for Satalia, is that we would architect systems that could, that could safely adapt themselves in production. And it's only really now that organizations are realizing the importance of building systems that can learn. Okay, so let's go to that period then, mid-2010 to 2015, when Satalia started to achieve its first large business customers. Can you talk us through some of those early adopters and the kind of solutions you were building for them and the scope of the projects you were given? Because that was exciting times, as I remember. Yeah, I think, I think that the original idea for Satalia was, was essentially optimization as a service, or what you might call it now AI as a service, um, you would, you would aggregate lots and lots of algorithms that were being pioneered by academics and industry would be able to tap into those algorithms by building applications on top of them um, to use the best algorithms in the, in, in the world. And um, the, uh, the, I mean, this was before the cloud and before APIs and things like, thing, th things like that. But, but because Satalia was close to academia, our relationship with UCL, obviously my, my, my PhD, 
um, organizations saw us as not just doing consultancy, but having access now to technologies that could help them solve problems. And our first big break, I think around two, 2014, was with Tesco. So Tesco had um, a, a large-scale optimization problem that they, need, they needed to solve, which is delivering um, uh, groceries to, their, to their, their customers. And they knew, like a lot of organizations, that that was an optimization problem. Yeah? And uh, they, they knew that you know, it wasn't a machine learning problem, but they needed to, to use bleeding-edge algorithms from academia to solve that. And they saw us as a conduit for um, those algorithms. And, and when, when they saw that we could build end-to-end systems that could adapt themselves with UIs and all that kind of stuff, they essentially commissioned Satalia to build their entire last mile delivery solution, which was really pioneering of Tesco because they could have easily gone and bought a new solution off the shelf or they could have, they could have you know, there were other options that were out there, but they wanted to, to build this themselves. They wanted to make sure that they had um, control over that innovation they could then internalize and, and develop themselves. So we, we built for Tesco um, what they claimed to be the best last mile delivery solution in the world. It was phenomenally successful. Uh, off the back of that, Satalia then built our own last mile delivery solution that we've, we've subsequently taken to market. And over the past 10 years, we've, we've continued to solve problems across the supply chain um, that move the needle for organizations in warehousing, in middle mile, in supplier confidence prediction, all of this kind of stuff. So your Satalia delivery product still exists. Presumably it's evolved over the last 10 years or so. What are some of the main changes or features that you brought into the product? Oh, this I could really geek out around this, but uh, but but um, optimization was just one area that could be pioneered in 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 delivery. So, f- figuring out how to route vehicles in in an efficient way uses optimization algorithms. But one of the big innovations was actually being able to calculate very rapidly um, how long it takes to get from A to B. So, if you went to Google Maps now or any kind of routing engine and ask it to give you a thousand A to B routes. It will take several minutes to give you the, that, that response. We needed, we needed to solve that problem in, in 50 milliseconds. So we need to be able to produce a 1,000 A to B routes in, in, in less than 50 milliseconds that are incredibly accurate because those routes that are then used by the optimization algorithms to, to decide what, what the, the, the schedule looks like. So we, we pioneered um, geospatial routing. Uh, that was another kind of algorithmic advance. But also, once you've solved that problem, the optimization problem, as I said, there are now ways of using machine learning to extract more uh, value um, uh, from that schedule. So predicting how long it takes to deliver to a particular customer, for example, I can use machine learning to, to, to do that better. I can use machine learning to predict driver behavior so I can encourage them to drive differently. And so there are lots of opportunities to, to apply different types of algorithms to solve that problem. And that's what we did um, with, with Tesco. We brought these different technologies together. And again, that's pulling in more data then to deliver more insights. That's right. And then I guess off the back of that, we've built our own product, um, in, 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 in that case, last mile delivery, that's now delivering groceries for Bullworths in Australia. It delivers um, sofas for DFS here in the UK, um, uh, equipment hire for HSS. Um, so we, we generalize that solution and we've, we've taken that to market. And, and, and we've, we've also, as I said, solved problems across the entire supply chain. I think what's exciting for me is not just now about using these technologies to solve individual problems across the supply chain, but actually to create a digital twin of a company. So, so we're getting to the point now where we can represent an entire organization as a large optimization problem. And the efficiencies that you can get from modeling organizations in its entirety is phenomenal. So the next five, 10 years is really about building digital twins of entire companies. That's really fascinating. 
The other leading product that Satalia developed was the Workforce product. That's again another optimization type of solution which you pioneered. Tell us a little bit about that one and how that evolved for a specific customer's requirements and then moved on from there. Yeah, I'm, I'm really passionate about, about Workforce. I've always been interested in, about, in how, how do you create an operating system for a company that allows for the right structure to emerge according to the innovation you're taking to market. I'll say that again because it's quite complicated, but most organizations start out as being a product company or a service company. And you, you organize yourself, you structure yourself around kind of that offering. And then you know, the pressure to diversify your, diversify your revenues, to, you know, to, to go into different markets, means that you end up trying to be a services company if you're a product company or a product company if you're a services company. Uh, you're nodding... Uh, Marina, so I'm sure you've experienced this with, with your startups. But so I, I sort of saw that coming at the very beginning of Satalia. And so what I wanted to do is operate, uh, create a new operating system that allowed for the right structure to emerge according to what we're taking to market. So, which is why Satalia is good at doing services and we're really good at also building product and platform. And so, workforce um, allocation, allocating people to work in a fluid, liquid way is, is something I'm very interested in. And we, have, we had an opportunity to build. A workforce solution for PwC. They have five thousand auditors in the UK, and they wanted to allocate those auditors in a way that maximised their utilisation, maximised their career development, continuity for clients, minimised travel time. It's a very, very complex problem to solve. Um, historically, they would have you know, forty people trying to solve that problem, and the power of algorithms is that you can solve that problem in four hours significantly better than any human being. And again, this this was an, an example of where you don't just use optimization but you can use machine learning. So you allocate people to work, you then use machine learning to see whether they've worked well in those teams, whether they've developed the skills that they claim to have developed. So you use machine learning to do that, and then you can then better allocate them in the future. So that's where that feedback loop is really, really important. Um, and then and, and these, these um, technologies, these capabilities that Satalia has developed over the past 15 years were then really attractive for uh, an acquirer. Absolutely, we'll get to that in a minute. So these are really holistic solutions, aren't they? And I think it might be worth saying a little bit about the way you built the company. That's probably just as important to the acquisition story because you didn't just build a company uh, as a normal research team with a marketing front end on it or a product development front end. You built something that was a little different and that mimicked this idea of holistic solution. I, I, I spent some time in Silicon Valley um, you know, working with large, large, large companies Obviously, we've been building solutions for companies for for over a decade, and and I you know I it, I, I can see some of the the difficulties, the bureaucracies, the frictions that exist in organisations, and I didn't I didn't want that of Satalia, and and so I've been challenging myself almost from the beginning. Uh, how can we we create a company that that enables us to to organise ourselves in the most effective way? If we want to be the best innovation company in the world, we need to be be able to move quickly more quickly than anybody else and, and that means you need to remove those frictions those, those barriers and enable people get out of the way of people so they can do their job really well and and fortunately you know over the past five years the idea of, you know scrum and agile and design thinking of as kind of have also been supercharged by by ai um and and actually i it's to tell you it was about 100 120 people when we were acquired and we didn't ever have any fixed managers fixed hierarchies People were always free to work where they want, how they want, and whatever they want, um, even way before COVID. And uh, and the, the, my goal is to, is to not just scale that across 120,000 people now in WPP. My, my goal is actually to try to scale that to a planet 
I would like to try and create a platform where everybody in the world has access to the ability to work on what they want, where they want, how they want. And I think it actually might take the edge off some of the impending challenges we have um, around uh, around the impact of AI over the next decade or so. Um, so I'm really passionate about how do we unlock the creative capacity of people um, by, by structuring ourselves in, in new ways. I think Silicon Valley call this now kind of liquid democracy or liquid or fluid organisations, but it's something that we've been thinking about for, for many, many years. What might your next steps be in that direction then? Uh, so so I, um, I think... I think the advances in AI recently has changed um, has changed my view on what the world might look like over the next twenty years. I I thought we might get a bit philosophical here, but I thought that we might have twenty years before we we build uh, super intelligence and um, and within that twenty years, how could we get humanity cooperating better as a species? And and one step to enabling people to 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 cooperate better the, the species is to, is to rethink how we allocate work. And, but now, I'm, because of obviously the advances in AI, which has caught everybody a surprise, it's me, you know, I've been in this field for 20 years, it's, it, it's now changed how I, I'm thinking about things. So it might be that we see superintelligence much, much sooner than, than, than the economic impact that these, these technologies will have. Which requires some serious thinking about. There's obviously a lot of commentary on that at the moment and the subject of an entirely different podcast, I think. Hopefully we'll have you back to talk about that one time soon. But obviously we can't really have a conversation in April 2023 without touching on the likes of the generative AI models that have sprung out of nowhere in the last six months or so. Taking it back specifically to a product perspective, as opposed to the philosophical angle, what are you thinking about how and if you would integrate such technologies into the kinds of products Italia's building? I'm absolutely uh, at the. I'd like to think at the forefront of this now. So obviously, WPP, who acquired Italia eighteen months ago, produces I don't know a quarter, a third of the world's content. So ge- generating content is something that's very, very important mm-hmm. to, to 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 WPP. Um, I mean, the reason why we were acquired were multiple reasons. One is that they wanted um, to be able to augment our supply chain logistics capabilities with marketing so they can take those capabilities to to customers rather than just marketing they wanted to utilize our, our knowledge our experience in workforce allocation to enable WPP to operate more mm-hmm. fluidly um, we're also kind of WPP's deep mind we're building internal solutions for WPP which I'll talk about in a second because that touches on generative AI we take technologies to clients AI technologies to clients so when people think about AI they don't just think about Accenture and they now think about WPP, and, and and because of my chief AI officer role, I get to kind of a platform to to think about the impact that these technologies will have on society in the longer term, and how we can use these technologies, I guess, for cool instead of creepy, and how we can hold you know all of ourselves accountable to using these technologies well. But from a, from an internal kind of generative AI perspective, um, we uh, we um, we are building a, a number of different solutions in this space. So my, my hypothesis is that over the next several years, everybody will be able to generate any content they want. And, and the question will not be, how do you generate content? The question will be, what content do you generate to get the response that you want? Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that we're building is a concept called brand brains. This is a really interesting concept. So I guess if you go and ask Midjourney or Dali or whatever, GPT, to, to create a, an image of a, a cat in space holding a soft ice drink, cream. yeah, ice cream, uh, then it will create a generic 
picture of that. Of that. But if you're a, a creative working on, let's say, the Coca-Cola account, you need to make sure that that content is aligned with Coca-Cola's brand guidelines. It, it understands that it's not just a soda, but it's uh, it's Coca-Cola. It has Coca-Cola's tone of voice, all that kind of stuff. So, so what what you can do is build brains, build brand brains that, that you can glue on top of these large language models. That first of all enrich the prompt, so it, it, it expands the prompt, mm -hmm. uh, and then it also takes the response and recontextualizes the response to align with the brand. So that's that's how we can first of all build content that's much more specific to um, to, to to brands. But the, the other thing, the question is, is not not just you know, what uh, creating content is what content you create, and 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 this these large language models are kind of inverted how we think about um, about machine learning now. So now what we do is we build what are called uh, I guess audience brains. So every you know, when you're when when you're marketing content to people, you have a target market, and you want to try to understand how does that person what does that person when they see a piece of content what 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 do they construct in their mind the they don't just see a cat in space with a soda, but it will elicit nostalgia, excitement. They will create a complex narrative in their mind. Uh, and what we want to do is essentially get AI to, to replicate that narrative. You will create a different narrative in your mind, Marina, than, than I will. So how can we get AI to create that complex narrative? And then how do we correlate that complex narrative with clicks and yes. sales? Mm -hmm. And um, so... These audience brains are, are are phenomenally powerful, and and uh, and not not only that is you also need to build audience brains of cultures or newspapers or uh, uh, political parties or minority groups because you want to see how they will respond to content mm -hmm. and that you're not offending anybody or you're not breaking the law. Mm -hmm. um, so you have brains that you're 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 kind of represent your target audiences, but also brains that represent groups of people who you care. How they think, um, and 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 then obviously you need to understand when you produce content, you show it to those people, you see what, how they react, that you learn from it, mm -hmm. and 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 I think the differentiator for companies like WPP is not creating content very quickly; it's figuring out what content, what content to create, and to what audience to show it to, and that's the stuff that we're working on. And that feeds into something they've been doing for a long time already, which is audience measurement, presumably, as it's been part of what they've been doing for years. So you're building on top of that by linking that together with this audience brain piece. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, indeed. And then, so no, no, not only obviously WPP doing this, been doing this for, for many, many years, um, but obviously we are also providing these these solutions to clients as well. So mm -hmm. clients want the infrastructure to also be able to do this. Well, interestingly, the, the the barrier is not necessarily a technological challenge. The barrier is um, a legal challenge. So, so. Companies, brands are concerned that when they prompt these models, who owns that prompt? Who owns the response? If you tune the models, if you're a, I don't know, if you're a furniture company and you you trained or tuned a model on knowledge about all of your your furniture, your assets, mm -hmm. and how much they cost and what the margins are, then who has access to that data mm -hmm. is a big big challenge. So so um, um, we know that we can kind of build our own instances of these brains and, and isolate them so that that um, IP is is not leaked. 
Um, so it's not a technical technical challenge, it's, a, it's now a legal challenge yeah. that the, the organisations are working through, which again, very, very interesting and exciting. And it's been, as you say, nearly two years since WPP acquired Satalia. And when they acquired Satalia, there were already many other AI-first companies providing consultancy services and products to enterprises. So what do you think it was that about Satalia that caused WPP to pick you? I think you know a lot of organisations out there kind of specialised in in one type of AI, and and I think that because of because of my background in, in in AI over the past twenty years, I'm very fortunate to have both done you know machine learning and and kind of optimization operations research, and because I'm I guess a, a popular speaker on the uh, the ethical social safe impact of these technologies, we 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 brought to them kind of like a more complete package. Both from you know capability and logistics, which is what they wanted to expand into in, in workforce. Um, we we did have some um, experience in, in generative AI at the time, and um, and then and then and then you know how do we position ourselves to using these technologies for good? So I think that we were a, a complete package for for uh, WPP, and and at the time I think there was quite a, a few organisations that were wanting to acquire us, but. Um, but I just felt like there were so many synergies with WPP, and we've been working with a few um, um, opcos from WPP um, on on clients, and it just been really enjoyable uh, working with creative people, solving difficult problems, and um, and it, it, yeah, it's it's been a, it's been a great uh, one of the best decisions of uh, business decisions of my life. It's great. Presumably, there are still misconceptions in industry as to what AI can achieve. What do you think that current misconception is? We're still we're still seeing organisations hire data scientists, um, which I, I think the the idea is that data scientists are able to extract insights from data, then and human beings are able to make better decisions. And you know I can't say that enough that, that human beings are not typically very good at making decisions. So I, I'm still a massive advocate of companies hiring optimization people, which they're now starting to do. Mm-hmm. They're starting to try and steal some of my my, my people actually, <laughs> uh, which is frustrating. Uh, but um, but I actually more recently, and, and I'll try to go this through. Very very quickly. More recently, I've been thinking of AI not through definitions but through its applications. So I believe that there are six applications um, of of AI um, that that are really making a difference for organisations. So just very quickly, um, task automation is is whilst it gets kind of like a bad reputation in the AI community because it's very simple algorithms um, that that automate relatively standard tasks. The, the fact is is that you can free a huge amount of of, of cost of human labour. Um, and get them to do more interesting things. So task automata- automation is is, is, is is having a big impact. Obviously, generative content generation, augmenting the creative process, uh, that's the second category. The, the third category, uh, what I call the humanization, um, i.e. you're taking a human being and you're replacing it by something that looks and behaves like a human being. So going back to this idea of audience brains, we're creating an audience representation of a human being. Um, so there's, there's, there's a replacing a human with a like for like. Uh, that's the third category. The fourth category is machine learning or extracting insights from data. And I think I think that's where a lot of misinvestment is currently happening still. Um, although I, th- I think what's exciting about extracting insights from data is these technologies can help us explain why those insights exist so that we can learn new things about the world. So that's where I think the opportunity is. The fifth category is is complex decision making. So again, traditional optimization, which is Satalia, what was Satalia is very strong at, and we're continuing to see a massive impact on, on business. And then the final category is the augmentation of your physical self with cybernetics, with robotics, and also the digital self, the digital you um, in the metaverse um, with with 
with something that's making decisions on your behalf and maybe just to bring this to life a little bit um we we actually build digital representations of employees this might sound a bit creepy and then we then i have to use a better word than interrogate but we then query or interrogate that digital representation and ask you know if we put you on this team will you thrive if we you go on this project will it, will it help you develop your career so it, going back to this idea of audience brains instead of seeing how they respond to marketing content i can build a brain that represents you in your world of work and understand how to have you better fit into the organization that all does sound a little bit creepy daniel it's all about the intent right it's about the intended use of these technologies if you intend to use them to squeeze utilization out of them or to you know to, to manipulate them then people won't allow allow you to do it but we intend to use these to these use these technologies to enrich people's lives as long as we continue to do that i know you're one of the good guys but obviously the challenges of convincing people that you don't know is a tough one in, in indeed i mean i think yeah exactly i think uh i don't know what what the next 10 years is going to look like for us but i, I think there's a lot of concern about 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 these technologies that people have I think the next 10 years is going to be crazy. We're going to see a Cambrian explosion of not just the application of generative AI, but all of these other AIs that are going to just um, exponentially accelerate. So I think it's going to be an exciting decade ahead. Beyond that, I don't think anybody really knows what's going to happen. But what I do know is that it's within our gift to create the future. We, we don't just sit around and wait for that future to happen. It's up to all of us to create that future. And, and I guess a couple of weeks ago, I was frustrated, you know, reading LinkedIn and everybody's now become an AI philosopher. Everybody has an opinion about AGI or super intelligence. And, you know, I, you know, I've been working with people for many, many decades who've been thinking about these things extremely deeply. And, and I kind of realized that actually it's really good that people are concerning themselves about these things. It's really good that now AI, everybody's philosophizing about AI. I think what we want to make sure is that if we're informing policy, or you know, making big decisions based on on what's going, or, you know, this, this this chatter that we have the right people at the table. I think it's great that everybody's talking about it. But one thing I would ask everybody is is to be kind of intellectually honest with ourselves and uh, make sure that we have the right people at the table making the right decisions, um, because these things will change the world in incredible ways. And uh, we need to make sure that we we use them for for the right right reasons. The final question. Is it a bit like global warming? Are we a little bit too late coming to the discussion about whether AI is moving too fast, too quickly, or have we still got time? So it's a question I ask myself every other hour of every day. Um, so, yeah, I, the answer is I, I don't. I don't know. When I when I engage with with kind of my peers, people um, who are you know working at, at companies like DeepMind and authors that have been writing uh, on this subject for, for many years, I think the general concern now is that we will, we will see an AGI um, happen in the next four to eight years. Um, and uh, I mean, I think I had a, a private audience with Sam Altman a few years ago and we were talking about the impact that GPT-4 is going to have. And back then he thought we would achieve AGI by the end of, end of this, uh, this decade. And, and I think now the feeling is that we could start to see AGI happen even even sooner. And we do, we don't know that once we've built a, a machine that's as intelligent as us, how quickly it will take for that machine to become a million times more intelligent than us. We 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 really don't know. And I think that that's one of the concerns that that, that we currently have. That's an interesting thought to finish with, Daniel. As usual, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk with you. 
before we get too down in the philosophical weeds, I think we should probably leave it there. But thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to chatting with you again. Mm -hmm.